Hey, Frank Murphy here taking Ryan's place this week. I know you're disappointed that it's me and not Ryan. After all, Ryan is better looking. He's more intelligent. He's more eloquent. What was that other thing, Ryan? Oh, he's funnier too. Anyhow, you've got me here today because Ryan is going to be preaching on Sunday for Brother Mac. So I'm helping him out by doing this so he can be get his preparation done for Sunday. So be in prayer for him as he shares with our entire church on Sunday morning. I know you've been anxiously awaiting the start of school and the return of life as you have known it in the past. We still don't know a lot of the answers to that or what's going to happen. There's still many unknowns that we'll have to uh, work our way through. Uh, please be in prayer for me and my family as my youngest brother has the coronavirus. He has two boys, one a high school sophomore and one a seventh grader. So just imagine if it was your family because you're probably in one of those age groups in that range and, and uh, be in prayer for my brother and his family. Ryan was telling me that you have been looking at the book of Galatians on your midweek study. He asked me to do a recap of chapter 1 of Galatians today. So we're going to jump right into the book, and we'll be in chapter 1, beginning with the very beginning in verse 1. So I'm going to be reading that for you, and I'm reading from the Good News Translation. And this is where Paul writes, From God, whose call to be an apostle did not come from man or by means of man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from death. All the brothers who are here join me in sending greetings to the churches of Galatia. Now Paul sets the tone right here for where he is going in his entire letter. In the other letters Paul writes, he's much briefer and less inclined to say much in his greeting. In some cases he writes something like, Paul, an apostle of Christ by God's will, which is a reference to his calling. and other places, he refers to himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Or if he's writing with some other people, he'll say, Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus greet you, or something to that effect. Here, however, he goes out of his way to validate his calling to the churches in Galatia. Let me read that again. He says, from Paul, who, whose call to be an apostle did not come from man or by means of man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Remember that phrase, from man and by means of man. Uh, he'll make reference to it again momentarily. Notice that he ends this greeting to the churches of Galatia. Most of Paul's writings are written to specific churches in specific cities or towns like Ephesus, Corinth, Philippi, Rome, Colossae, Thessalonica. But here, here it's the plural churches because Galatia is not a city or a town but a region of Asia Minor, or what we'd call a modern-day Turkey. This letter was passed from the church in Iconium to the church in Derby to the church in Perga and to other churches in this region of Galatia. These churches make up the group of towns 
that Paul visited on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. Paul was never one to hem and haul around about what was on his mind. Usually a letter from Paul would include some instruction on being a better church or being a better person. Sometimes he might be quite critical of a church and uh, what he had heard about them. There's no better place to see this than in Galatians chapter 1 in beginning with verse 6. And let me read this for you. He says here, I'm surprised at you. In no time at all, you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you're accepting another gospel. Actually, there is no other gospel, but I say this because there are some people who are, who are upsetting you and trying to change the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is different from the one we preach to you, may we be condemned to hell. We've said it before, and now I say it again. If anyone preaches to you a gospel that is different from the one you accepted, may we be condemned to hell. Now, that's some straight shooting. Paul is the one who had brought the gospel to each of these cities. He's the one, along with Barnabas, who started these churches, and so he should know what he had shared about the gospel. But something has happened. The teaching of the gospel has been distorted and perverted by a group of people who we sort of call the Judaizers. We'll get back to what they're teaching in just a minute. But imagine for me that you have a friend from the backward country of Fredonia. Look it up. You've been invited to Fredonia by this friend named Rufus. One day he says, come and watch our basketball game this afternoon. And so you go to the gym and they have baskets just like ours and a regulation basketball and a regulation court. As the game begins, you see the players moving around, passing the ball to one another to advance the ball down the court. When a player receives the ball, he stands and sort of pivots on one foot, trying to find someone to pass to. The game kind of looks like a game of ultimate frisbee on a basketball court. Points and shots are hard to come by. Finally, in your frustration, you shout out to your friend and, who's playing and say, why don't you dribble the ball? The game stops. There's dead silence. You might as well be speaking in Chinese. Do what? Rufus asked. Dribble the ball. What? What do you mean by dribble? Dribbling, you say, is the essence of movement in the game of basketball. When you have the ball, you have the option to pass to another person or bouncing the ball and moving at the same time. As long as you continue to bounce the ball with one hand, you can move with the ball on the court. Once you've picked up the ball with two hands, you can no longer advance on the court and you must stop and either pass or shoot. It's the key element that separates this game from other games. 
good dribbling will dramatically change the game of basketball. Without dribbling, you're not playing basketball. This is like what Paul is saying to the churches in Galatia. Paul says, you say you're living out the gospel, but you're not. You have left out the most important thing about the gospel. The gospel is the idea of salvation comes as a result of God's grace given to us who have faith in Jesus Christ. It comes as a result of God's grace based on your faith in Jesus Christ. It is not to say these churches have completely abandoned this idea that Paul first taught them, but that now the Judaizers have come in and said, uh, there's something more that you must do before you can be a Christian. You must become a Jew and obey the law of Moses before you can be a Christian. If you don't follow the 682 laws set out in the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, including the one about circumcision, then you are not a Christian. Salvation comes by living the perfect life of obedience to the law of Moses. That is what the Judaizers would say. This idea infuriates Paul because it means the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has no meaning if what they say about following the strict guidelines of the law of Moses is true. Nothing has changed about Jesus coming and dying on the cross if, if they make obedience to the law mandatory for salvation. Paul recognizes we can, we can never live up to this expectation. No one can remain so committed and perfect Paul understands that in the pl place of this impossible expectation of obedience, God has sent His Son, Jesus, to be the means by which we are saved. It is not based on any act we can do. We cannot earn it or trade for it or buy it. We can only receive salvation as a gift from God. It is His to give, and therefore by His grace, by His willingness, He makes it available to us. That is the gospel. There are many things that we can do that are included in living the Christian life. We can follow the teachings of Jesus. We can minister to the poor and needy and the disenfranchised, the least of these. We can share the gospel with those who do not know the way to salvation. We can pray for God's Holy Spirit for guidance in our life. We can pray for others. We can support the local church by our, our active participation and by our tithe. We have a lot of things beyond that that we can do that are part of living as a Christian. But there's only one gospel. God loved us and sent His Son to be the means by which we have salvation. The Word of God is made flesh in Jesus Christ so that we, can we have the right to receive the, well, we receive the right to become children of God through His grace and truth. That is what the gospel is. Brother Max says many things in his sermons, and he repeats himself on a number of things. One of the things that occasionally you will hear him say is, who is Cain's wife? 
He has never, as far as I can recall, ever attempted to answer that question, who is Cain's wife, and he's probably wise to do so. I remember once when I was in the eighth or ninth grade that our Sunday night small group, we were having a, a study on the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis. It became a very stimulating conversation about how this story is related to the Christian doctrine of salvation. There are a lot of there were a lot of different and sometimes unorthodox ideas that we were throwing out to our teacher about how this story in Genesis relates to the narrative of the New Testament. Perhaps we even began to to ask who was Cain's wife. I'm not sure I remember that. I just remember that our teacher Miss White was getting pretty flustered at our creative ideas about the meaning of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. When class was over, I leaned over to her and added one more theory that I had developed regarding the story of Adam and Eve. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but let's just say it was not a theory accepted by the Baptist faith and message or any Baptist doctrine that I know of. I didn't necessarily mean I believed my hypothesis, but I thought it was worth considering. But Miss White looked at me and rather curtly said, if you believe that, you're not a Christian. I just looked at her bewildered and said, I am a Christian. I didn't see then what made what I said turn me from being a Christian. I think it was a decent idea. It deserved a hearing. But in any event, it was not anything that would have altered my faith in Jesus Christ or my acceptance of God's grace for the forgiveness of my sin. It had nothing to do with whether or not I accepted the call of Jesus in my life. And I had never heard anyone say, in order to become a Christian, you have to accept Jesus as my Savior and you have to accept this particular interpretation. No, the gospel has nothing to do with adopting a certain biblical interpretation or, or obedience to the law of Moses or the act of circumcision. It is all about accepting the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is writing about to these churches in Galatians chapter 1. In fact, Paul is saying, remember what I taught you when I came to you and first shared the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised to life by God. Then if we look again in verse 11, Paul sets up kind of a defense for his position. He says in verse 11 and 12, Let me tell you, my brothers, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor did anyone teach it to me. It was Jesus Christ himself who revealed it to me. Now, now Paul has really gone back to what he began with referring to in verse 1 in his initial greeting. You recall that Paul said in verse 1, from Paul whose call to be an apostle did not come from man or by means of man, but from Jesus Christ and from God the Father. In both verse 1 and verse 11, Paul adamantly states that his authority to be an apostle and his authority to share the gospel did not come from man, but directly from Jesus Christ himself. The gospel did not come from a pamphlet he read or a speaker he heard. 
It came from the Son of God. We all remember how Paul was converted on the road to Damascus when Jesus spoke to him in a blinding light saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In Galatians, it's assumed that they know this story of Paul's conversion. From verse 12 on to the end of chapter 1, Paul relates to the churches how he has come to this remarkable place in his life. In every example, he makes it clear that he has been revealed this gospel not from any other person, but from Christ himself. Now, granted, Paul did not live out his new faith in a vacuum. He did learn from some older, wiser teachers like Ananias, like Barnabas and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, all of whom he mentions later in the book of Galatians. One could go back and read the book of Acts and read some more about his journey of faith there. But what he wants the churches in Galatia to understand that he has been revealed this gospel by God. By the Spirit of God, God has taught him what the gospel is. Paul states these things to give testimony to why the churches should believe him about the gospel and not the word of these Judaizers. Paul recognizes the danger in the gospel according to the Judaizers. Theirs is a work-based gospel. It is a gospel of doing in it is a gospel of doing enough good things. It's a gospel that kind of works like an exam. If you can get enough right answers, you will pass. Or in this case, if you can do enough right things, you might earn your salvation diploma. Paul will have none of this idea. The gospel cannot be earned. You cannot check off enough things of good things from a list to get you into heaven. Paul says we must be put right with God by our faith in Jesus Christ through God's grace. Paul knows that the story of Jesus means nothing if we have to get right with God from sheer obedience. And he knows if we try to obey that we will fail. Chapter 1 is only the beginning of Paul's objections to this teaching of the Judaizers. As you continue to work through this book, you will see Paul return again and again to this theme. It's a theme he repeats in chapter 2 of Ephesians in a more famous passage, For by grace we are saved through faith. It is not of our own doing, but is a gift of God. It is not by works, lest anyone should boast. There is a place for the law of Moses in Christian theology and in our church. The law, after all, was given to first the Jews and to later us by God. God gave us this law. His intention is twofold. First of all, it's to point out the sin in our lives, to point out and show us what is the right living and how we have fallen short of those things. And secondly, the law leads us to grace. Because we can never completely be obedient to the law, we recognize our own weakness and our insufficiency. And this insufficiency leads us to despair that we can ever be good enough. And in the end, it compels us to throw ourselves upon the mercy 
and love of God, we admit that the only thing that can save us is God. And when God chooses to save us, we have received His grace. This is a key moment in the church, a key moment in determining what it will be. Will the church become the bearer of the good news of Jesus Christ, or will it be just another Jewish sect? I doubt it would have survived as a Jewish sect. It would have eventually been synthesized into the old Jewish thought. But by God's grace and by the power of these people like Paul who stood up to the Judaizers, we too have received the story of the gospel of Jesus. And that's the good news of the gospel right there, that, that God loves us and has sent His Son to be the means by which we are all saved. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 